Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. If current demographic trends continue, India is on course to blow past China as the world's most populated country by the mid-2020s. Its dominant religion, Hinduism, is the third largest in the world behind Christianity and Islam. But Hinduism is ancient, many-layered, and surprisingly complex, and it's not well understood outside of India. For more than half a century now, my guest today has been trying to illuminate this subject for us, writing on Hindu culture, past and present. Since 1986, Dr. Wendy Doniger has served as the Mircha Eliada Distinguished Service Professor of the History of Religions in the University of Chicago, where she also teaches in the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations. She's a shoo-in for the Indology Hall of Fame, whenever they get one, as she's well-known and respected both for her translations of classic Sanskrit sources and for her many interpretive books and essays. She's here to talk with us about her recent book called On Hinduism, a sort of capstone of her decades of work on Hindu literature, religion, and culture. Dr. Doniger, welcome to Thinking About Religion. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Doniger, On Hinduism is a big feast of a book, and the book has a really unique history. Can you tell us how these 43 chapters came to be? Well, it's a collection of essays that I started writing about 50 years ago, and over the years, many of my essays became part of books, which I published separately, but some of them did not. So these are the ones that are sort of on special topics. They're about the things that I kept coming back to year after year, topics about animals and women and the conflicts within Hinduism, um, the treatment of the lower castes, storytelling, myth-making, and so forth. So um, they were all together, and my very brave Indian editor, Ravi Singh, who is often called Ravishing, you just put the H forward and it comes out to Ravishing, who was the head of Penguin Books India when the fuss came over my other book, he founded a new company and he invented this. He said, let's publish a book of your essays. And he collected them and um, I chose the ones I liked best and it became a book. It's sort of a summary of all my main concerns over a half a century. Dr. Doniger, I understand that you grew up in an unobservant Jewish household. At the start of this book, you explain that when you discovered India and Hinduism, you were consumed by religious questions. What sorts of questions were those? Well, there were the big questions about whether there is a God, and if so, why the world is such a mess, and how the world began, and why we die, and what happens to us after we die. All the big questions that begin to trouble thoughtful adolescents. And um, we never went to synagogue, so there was no help there. I hung out for a long time with Catholics. I would sort of sneak off to mass the way other kids went out to do drugs and things like that. That was my, <laughs> my drug in a way. Um, I thought that was a serious religion, ritual, bells and smells and so forth. And then my mother, who was a complete and utter atheist, in fact, a communist, my mother, who believed that the world would not be a safe place until the last rabbi was strangled with the entrails of the last priest, she was the one who started giving me books about India because she was interested in Indian art, in particular, the great temple at Angkor Wat. And so she gave me a copy of Rumor Garden's book, The River, and she gave me a copy of E.M. Forster's A Passage to India. And I began to think that the great religious questions were really being 
tackled in the most vivid way in India. I was learning Greek and Latin, and my Latin teacher said, you really ought to learn Sanskrit. And I said, what is Sanskrit? And she said, it's the language of ancient India, the language in which all these interesting texts were written. So everything sort of came together, my interest in religion, my interest in language, and my interest in India as a mysterious place. And as a 17-year-old freshman at Radcliffe, I studied Sanskrit. I've heard you speak very affectionately about your father in other interviews and even in the uh, preface to the book here. Was he also an atheist or was he a, a theist and you were kind of stuck in the middle between parents with very different outlooks? My father, you know, we never really talked about God. He was raised as an observant Jew in Russia when he was a little boy. His father was a kind of a rabbi. He himself never went to any religious service other than Passover, which was really like a Thanksgiving, really a family dinner in a way. But he made his living as the publisher of a magazine he founded called the Pulpit Digest, which is a digest of sermons for and by Protestant ministers. Hmm. And he invented one of the first book clubs in America, which was the Minister's Dollar Book Club. So religion was his business. And he hung out with bishops and people like that all the time. So he had a very friendly relationship with religious people, although I could not tell you what relationship, if any, he had with God. I would guess none. So from your perspective at that young age, when you encounter Hinduism, did that just sort of give you an enchanted view of the world, a supernatural view that contrasted with what you were used to? Hinduism certainly gave me a view of the world that seemed to explain better than either Judaism or Christianity why the world is the way it is. If you had a single God who really knew everything and kept his eye on things, it's just not possible that the planet should have reached the state that it's in now. If you had a lot of gods, all of whom were sort of inadequate and plagued by the same problems that we have, very much like us except more powerful— what is it that Woody Allen said? God is not evil, he's just an underachiever. <laughs> the Hindu gods are underachievers too, in a way. And um, it just made more sense to me that people like that would be gods rather than the gods of Judaism and Christianity. It made sense to me. And also, I love the stories. They were just great stories. They were more interesting to me than the Bible. Interesting though the Bible is, there's no question. But the Hindu stories I thought were even more various, more provocative, more inconsistent, more passionate. I just loved the stories. Dr. Doniger, do you think that there's something Jewish about your approach to Hinduism? Well, the Jews have been great historians of religions for centuries, in part because the nature of anti-Semitism was such that any Jew in Europe had to know two cultures. They were all cultural historians to extent. So you spoke Yiddish at home and you did not speak Yiddish out of the house. So every Jew was bilingual to begin with. You lived in your own world in the shtetl and you went into another world in order to make your living. It's not an accident that Jews have been leading um, historians of religions in general, and some Jews have done some of the best work on Hinduism. So in that sense, I find myself in that tradition of bicultural, bilingual Jews. 
I don't think that my interpretation of the stories is particularly Jewish, although I must say the greatest of all interpreters of stories was, after all, Freud, and he got his techniques from the rabbis. So in that sense, I'm in that lineage of seeing what's behind the story, what is not said, what is said backwards from what is really meant. That kind of questioning of a text is a Talmudic questioning and a Freudian questioning, and I I do situate myself in that tradition. It strikes me that your work has a real humanistic interest in almost every case. There's a sort of anti-humanistic aspect to uh, Hindu philosophy, that the human race is an illusion, the whole visible world is an illusion, individual humans are an illusion. You treat the stories as full of interesting characters, fictional characters that tell us something about human nature and uh, even tell us something about the people who wrote them. Yes, they are human, very human stories. The gods are very human gods. They're about us. I know something of Indian philosophy. I respect it, but it's not what really grabs me. Um, It's in the stories. You can't do the stories without knowing the philosophical background. There's some basic things that are built into the whole worldview of any educated Hindu from the thousands of years ago. So you need to know it's there. But the stories often mock the philosophy, they often compete with it, they often challenge it, they don't simply follow it. And it's the stories that I like much better than the philosophers. And as you point out, they were kind of for different clientels. The philosophy was usually for the elites, and the stories were beloved by the masses. The philosophy is almost entirely male. And the stories were largely handed on by women. They were always written down by men because for a long time women didn't have access to writing down things in Sanskrit, which is all that was preserved until just a few hundred years ago, really. From the ancient period, all you have is Sanskrit, and therefore the scribe was always a man. But the scribe was a man who had a mother and who had a nanny and who had a wet nurse and who had all sorts of aunties and people that put him to sleep at night, and that's where the stories got in. So the stories that those men wrote down in their Sanskrit texts very often were originally told by women and often have a feminist pro-woman bias too, which is surprising given the anti-woman attitude of the legal texts of the period. When thinking about religion returns, I asked Dr. Doniger about common Western misconceptions about Hinduism. Dr. Doniger, in so many ways, Hinduism is a wild, unwieldy, messy, difficult subject. seems like there's an exception to almost any generalization a scholar can make about Hinduism. Do you find that even educated Western people make foolish assumptions about Hinduism? And if so, what are some of those? I certainly think that the image that people who haven't really studied Hinduism have of the religion is enormously limited and very distorted. Partly it is not their fault because there are certain ideas about Hinduism which Hindus themselves set forth and write about and talk about. So, for instance, most Westerners think that all Hindus regard the Bhagavad Gita 
as their Bible. And when the British first came to India in the 18th century, they are colonizers, but they wanted to be as good as possible within that evil framework. So they wanted to rule India by its own religion and not interfere and sort of the, what is it, the prime imperative from Star Trek, right? So you sort of, when you go to another planet, you leave it alone. So they said, okay, so what is your Bible? And they said, what is our what? Because the whole concept is simply not Hindu. But finally, the Brahmins who learned English and got to learn about Christianity, mostly Unitarianism, actually, they said, ah, the Gita, because the Brahmins in Bengal, which is where the British first landed and ruled, the Calcutta was the original capital of the British Raj in India, those Brahmins read the Bhagavad Gita. And so the British said, oh, it's the Bhagavad Gita. And ever since then, Westerners have thought that everyone in India reads and loves the Bhagavad Gita, whereas it's only a very particular strain, one certain type of Hindu. Most Hindus have completely other sacred texts. They don't read the Gita. They don't know the Gita. They have other stories in Tamil in South India. They have other stories in Gujarati and Gujarat and so forth. So that's a major misconception of what Hinduism is like. You also have um, Hindus of a certain educated Anglophone type who believe that Indian philosophy is Hinduism and that therefore they will describe themselves as monotheists, more properly monists really, people who believe that there is only one God and the whole universe is basically made of that God, which is an idea which came out in the 18th century under the influence of Unitarianism, actually, and the Unitarians in Calcutta. In fact, Hindus believe in all sorts of different gods, and even worshippers of Vishnu will worship Durga on Durga's birthday and will worship the elephant-headed god Ganesha before undertaking any new enterprise or beginning a business and so forth. And they may have a background belief of the basic sanctity of the universe, that in the broadest sense, the universe is indeed made of God. But they worship individual deities on different occasions, and different people have different favorite gods, and different members of the family may have different gods they pray to. So it is a thoroughly polytheistic religion to this day, although a certain type of educated Hindu will tell you it's monotheistic. So those are mistakes which are made as a result of listening to Hindus, not just sort of misinterpreting things. I think the other mistake that Americans make, despite what the Hindus say, is that the Americans believe that the caste system dominates every single aspect of Hindu life, and the Hindus will tell you there's no caste system, we don't have a caste system, everybody's equal, it's all just fine. So they're both wrong. It's certainly not true that there is no caste system. There's a very important caste system, which is quite basic. But it's also true that there's much more to Hinduism than the caste system. And Americans who think that it's nothing but a repressive social system are missing all the rest, which is quite free-thinking and beautiful and has nothing to do with racism and casteism and classism at all. So those are two mistaken views. The Hindus are wrong and the Americans are wrong too. The caste system is everywhere. That is to say, everyone in India has a caste and knows what it is. And most other people in India, besides the person in question, will know what he or she is when they see them. There's a wonderful line in My Fair Lady, where uh, uh, Colonel Higgins, who is a Sanskritist, according to George Bernard Shaw Pygmalion, the play that it's based on, says, 
An Englishman's way of thinking absolutely classifies him. The minute he speaks, he makes some other Englishman despise him. <laughs> so that is largely true of the English, certainly was in the 20, early 20th century. And in a way, it's true of the caste system, too. The minute you meet someone in India, you know what his caste is. The minute he opens his mouth, or indeed by the way he wears his clothes and so forth, people do have these categories. What you do about it varies enormously in a village and in the city, and some people are snobs and other people are not snobs. In a way, it's like racism. When you meet a person of color, you can see usually whether they are or are not a person of color. And in some places in America, you would treat that person differently. And in some places, you would not treat that person differently. So it's there. You can't say there is no racism in America. But it's also not true that every American is a racist. It's very similar with caste. There is caste, but some people just don't care about it. And some people really do. Dr. Doniger, why has the concept of Hinduism and even the word Hinduism been controversial in some recent scholarship? It's a good question. Hinduism has many different parts to it, and many Hindus believe things quite different from what other Hindus believe. This is, of course, true of Christianity. Eastern Orthodox, Catholics, Southern Baptists, enormously diverse in their views, but theoretically they are part of a single church. Theoretically they share one basic view, which is that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. So there are things which identify a Christian immediately, even though they're very, very different in every way. There's no single thing that every Hindu believes. In that sense, as a problem of generalization and categorization, Hinduism poses a problem different from the problem of Judaism and certainly of Christianity. But there are a number of beliefs that most Hindus believe. There are a number of shared ideas there are worldviews which make them different from other people in India, such as Muslims and Christians. As a scholar, you can see patterns, although individual Hindus will not say, I'm a Hindu usually, they'll say, I'm a Vaishnava, I'm a worshiper of Durga, and so forth. So there are ways in which, as an academic discipline, it makes sense to speak of Hinduism. It's something you can study. And at the same time, individual people might identify themselves in very different ways. So I think as a historian of religions, it makes sense to say there is a religion called Hinduism. And there are many Hindus who do think there is and who call themselves Hindus. But there is this problem of real diversity on a level which goes beyond the diversity of Christianity or Islam, too, which, as you know, is also very diverse. And yet you can say all these people are Muslims. So I think it's a matter of degree. I find it useful historically to speak of these movements, and there have been many times when people have regarded themselves as Hindus, but there is a problem with the word. There certainly is a problem. So people have been concerned, you would say rightly, that we not jump too quickly to say there's some easily identifiable essence of Hinduism, something that it always has in common. I guess etymology is part of the problem too, isn't it? Because the term Hinduism, this abstract noun, was first coined by Western scholars, as I understand. Uh, it's not a modern term. The British didn't invent that. It's an old word. It comes from the same word as the Indus River. It comes from the word Sindhu, which is the Persian word for the river. 
And the Sindh is the land of that river, the great Indus River, um, which cuts off northwest India from the rest of Central Asia and so forth. So it's originally a geographical term, meaning India. So Hindu is the same word as India, is the same word as Indus, is the same word as Sindh. They're all the same root, which is basically the Persian word for the river. So it's it's not a modern um, neologism. It's just simply a word that doesn't originally come from the people themselves who didn't call themselves Hindus. They called themselves Vaishnavas and so forth, or they called themselves Indians. The other problem with it is that if you say that Hinduism is the same word as India, you play into the hands of Hindu nationalists who say, this has always been a Hindu country, the Muslims have got to get out. And so the word is often used in anti-Muslim rhetorics. But that's not the fault of the word, that's the fault of nationalism. Dr. Doniger, can you explain this idea of Hindutva and how it's affected your own life and work? Hindutva is a Sanskrit word, a made-up Sanskrit word, meaning Hinduness. But it was coined in the 1920s by a man named Sarvarkar, who was a pretty rabid nationalist, anti-Muslim, also anti-British, but particularly anti-Muslim. And it has come to mean that branch of contemporary Hinduism nowadays, which is what I would call fundamentalist. Fundamentalist not only in being very rigid, but also in sharing with other fundamentalists the particular quality of denying aspects of their own religion, of defining Hinduism in a very narrow way and saying this is what Hinduism is and all these other people who call themselves Hindus are not. So it's a narrow definition of Hinduism which leaves out most of what I would call Hinduism and it is anti-Muslim, reactionary, it is anti-woman, it is anti-Dalit, what we used to call untouchables and so forth. So it is very powerful now with the ruling party, the BJP, which is in power in India, and its prime minister, Narendra Modi. So it's really dominating the political and religious scene in India, and to a great extent in the American Hindu diaspora as well. And because it is repressive, it causes problems for freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Of course, it's anti-gay. People get arrested. People get beaten up. They're roaming bands of people who enforce it. Valentine's Day is a bad thing. It's foreign. Couples shouldn't hold hands. Artworks are censored and destroyed. People splash paint on them. The greatest of uh, living artists in India, Hussain, was forced to flee India and die in exile because of Hindutva, disapproved of the way he depicted Indian gods and goddesses and so forth. So it makes a lot of trouble for freedom of religion, freedom of expression in India and outside of India. These are wealthy people who travel, who form the diasporas and so forth. So it's, it's, it's a big problem. You lived most of your life in isolation from this problem because you've lived in America for almost your entire life, and yet this came to affect you. Can you tell us that story? In America, in the 1990s, increasingly, I found that when I gave a public talk, there were objections, and in the question and answer, instead of having questions and answers, I got basically attacks. There's one man in particular, a wealthy retired businessman who lives in New Jersey, named Rajiv Malhotra, who has started a foundation called the Infinity Foundation, rather, 
arrogant name, has a lot of money that he's put into publicizing his views of Hinduism, which are Hindutva views. So I had trouble with him and his followers in America for a long time. Then I went to London and I gave a talk and someone in the audience during the question and answer read from a piece of paper she was holding in her hand and she read the exact question that Rajiv Malhotra had asked me a year earlier in America at a meeting of the American Academy of Religion. So she was just really parroting literally what he had said. And on that same occasion, someone threw an egg at me, missing. And the great Indian historian, William Dalrymple, who was in the chair, the egg went right between me and Will Dalrymple, He wrote an article in the Times of London about this and saying what a shame it was that these people were objecting to accurate historical presentations such as mine and setting forth instead a false view of Indian history, which demonized the Muslims and did other really bad things. So I thought it's about time someone wrote a book about Indian history countering all the Hindu Twa claims. So I wrote that book, and it was called The Hindus, An Alternative History. It was alternative in being alternative to the traditional British kings and and battles history, but it was also alternative to the Hindu view of Hindu history. As a result, there was a lawsuit against it as soon as it was published in India in 2010, brought by a man named Dinanath Batra, who did not bring the lawsuit on the part of the government. There was never any banning of the book or anything like that. Dinanath Batra was the right-hand man of Narendra Modi, who was now prime minister. In those days, Modi was simply the head of Gujarat, and he employed Dinanath Batra in Gujarat. Now that Modi is prime minister of all of India, Dinanath Batra is at work censoring the textbooks all over India. But at that time, he and a group of other old men, he was 81 at the time, brought a private lawsuit against me, but it was a criminal case accusing me of blasphemy, which is a crime in India. Mm. And there was a lawsuit, and the head of Penguin, this wonderful man, Ravi Singh, fought the lawsuit for four years. He paid the lawyers and kept the book in print and kept the book in print. And finally, after four years, Penguin India was bought by Penguin International with Pearson and other multinational companies running it. And they then sent the word to India, drop the lawsuit. We don't want anyone in our company going to jail, which is what would have happened had we lost the lawsuit because Rasmi is a crime and the punishment is three or four years in prison. So Penguin dropped the lawsuit, which is to say they gave in to the demands of Mr. Batra and his cronies saying, we will cease to publish the book in India. But... They're not the only company in India, and the head of Penguin International is actually a rather wonderful man, Sir John Makinson, and I met with him in London, and he gave me back the rights to publish that book in India. Penguin couldn't use it anymore. They had promised legally never to do it. And Ravi Singh, who had been the head of Penguin, left Penguin in protest, started a new company called Speaking Tiger, I gave Ravi Singh the right to publish The Hindus in India. He brought out another edition by Speaking Tiger, and the book is still in print and selling very well in India. So they didn't win, 
And indeed, by the publicity, there was tremendous publicity when Penguin gave in and simply agreed to the lawsuit. By doing that, they stimulated a great deal of publicity, and the book has been selling far better than any book I ever wrote in my whole life. (laughs) And it's an excellent book, too. I've read it cover to cover. I have to say, you're always very blunt, maybe even defiant when people try to shut you up, but I've never found you to be a troll, you know, somebody... (laughs) Somebody who's just uh, looking for controversy or trying to no. step on a raw nerve. We, in fact, Ravi and I went over the book and we took out one or two things that we thought would be like waving a red flag in front of a bull. We, we didn't try to make people angry, but we left things in that we knew would make people angry. There are things that are there in the Sanskrit texts, which the Hindu Twa people don't think are there because they haven't read the Sanskrit texts, and they don't believe are there because they don't like them. And I talk about some of those aspects, in particular things that are favorable to women and favorable to untouchables, Dalits as they're called now. So in my view, I'm not exactly an apologist for Hinduism, but I am presenting to the world of people who don't know much about it a good side of Hinduism, showing them that Hindus are more liberal than you might have thought, um, that they are more open-minded toward women and lower castes and so forth. So I feel I'm doing a service to Hinduism by showing good things about it that people don't know. But... The Hindu Twa people do not think these are good things, and therefore they think that I'm blaspheming. Dr. Doniger, can you tell us about the famous 20th century critique of Orientalism and how this has come to haunt the discipline of Indology? Well, it's an interesting word, Orientalism. It's an old word. It's an 18th, 19th century word. It used to mean the study of the Orient, and an Orientalist was a person who studied the Orient. So the Oriental Institute in Oxford, where I worked for many years, that simply meant the institute that studies the East. Mm -hmm. So then Edward Said, in 1978, wrote a book called Orientalism, in which he argued that the Orientalists, that is to say the scholars who studied the Orient, were not neutral observers, but servants of an evil colonial power, that they gathered knowledge which was put to the use of the army and of the political organization that dominated and um, destroyed large parts of India and so forth. And that therefore, scholars who studied the Orient had been implicated in the evils of colonialism. He was largely right. Uh, He overstated the case. Not all scholars did that, and not all of their work was used in that way, but a lot of it was. And as a result, non-Indians writing about India became very nervous, Um, and you have a lot of studies of post-colonialism. It became a whole new subject. And the word Oriental then became a negative word, that you would not call yourself an Orientalist anymore. Um, You would call yourself a student of India or something of that sort. So he changed the way we use the word, and he also made scholars nervous, rightly so to some extent, of their political involvement in the works that they studied. Some of it is true, but some of it is not. And Said himself modified his views in a later book that he wrote with essays that gave credit to some of the British colonial powers in India 
for having done good things as well as evil things. I particularly like Saeed's wonderful introduction to a new edition of Kipling's book, Kim. And Kipling's the man who coined the phrase, the white man's burden, and was certainly part of the colonial and therefore racist enterprise of the Indian Empire, the British Empire in India, the Raj. But Kipling's Kim is also a wonderful book. And Said acknowledged that it was a great book and talked about ways that Kipling transcended his own racism. And I think a lot of the Oriental scholars transcended their own racism. And in recent years, there's been a bit of a softening of the critique, um, an acknowledgement of much of the very good work that the scholars, the Oriental scholars did, despite the fact that they were, in fact, part of a very, very terrible enterprise, which has done unspeakable harm to most of the rest of the world. When Thinking About Religion Continues, I asked Dr. Doniger about something that's fascinated Christian observers of Hinduism, the so-called Hindu Trinity. And we also discussed the Hindu idea of avatars. Dr. Doniger, Christian observers have long been fascinated by the so-called Hindu trinity of Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma, but you call this in this book a false construction. What did you mean by that? It's funny, that trinity of uh, usually Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. It obviously in many ways um, replicates and answers to the Christian trinity. It only comes into India in about the 8th or ninth century CE, at a time when Christianity had been in um, India for some time, those gods are gods. Two of them are very important gods. Vishnu and Shiva are two of the greatest gods in India. Most Hindus worship one or the other. Nobody worships Brahma. There are no remaining one or two old Brahma temples, very few, He's simply not the object of worship. He is the creator of the universe, but not in the sense of creator with a capital C. If you worship Shiva, you believe that when Shiva wanted to make the universe, he got Brahma the way you'd get a plumber to fix a toilet or something and said, please, you know, this is your job, create the universe. And he did so. So he's a minor god in every sense of the word, whereas Shiva and Vishnu are great gods. And there's a wonderful story about his minorness. And the story is that Vishnu and Brahma were floating about in the oceans of chaos in the long period between the end of one universe and the beginning of another. They go cyclically around and around. And they met, and Vishnu said, I am your father, and Brahma said, I am your father. And they fought about this for a while. And while they were fighting, an enormous pillar of flame arose out of the ocean beside them. And it went up as far as they could see and down into the water as far as they could see. So they said, let's find out how big this is. So Vishnu says, I'll take the form of a, an aquatic boar, which is one of the avatars of Vishnu. 
and I'll go down to the bottom and see how deep it is. And Brahma said, I will take the form of a homsa, a goose or swan, which is the animal that Brahma is represented by and flies on, and I'll see how high the top is. So Vishnu went down, 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 down into the water, and after a while he realized that it was going to be infinite, and he came back up and said, I can't find the bottom. Brahma flew up for a while, and he also couldn't find the top, but he lied. He came back down, and he said, oh, it wasn't so high. It was really not. I found the top. It wasn't so big. At that point, the flame pillar burst open, and Shiva stepped out of it and said, I am the father of all of you. I'm the creator of the world. And he cursed Brahma, and he said, because you lied, you will no longer be worshipped. And that's a Hindu story about why Brahma is not worshipped. So it's really built, it's not just something that historians know, it's something that Hindus know and told a story about to explain. So it's not a functional trinity in that sense. There are three great deities in India, if you want to generalize. One is Vishnu, one is Shiva, and the third is the goddess. If you're really going to make a group, a triad of ruling deities, those would be the three And yet that idea that Brahma is the creator, Vishnu is the maintainer, and Shiva is the destroyer of the universe is in a lot of Sanskrit texts. And Vishnu's worshippers believe that he is the creator and the destroyer of the world. And Shiva's worshippers believe that he is the creator and the destroyer of the world. Neither one of them specializes in that way. And so it's, it's false to actual Hindu belief And yet it is a Hindu belief. You will find in fairly old Sanskrit texts references to the the trinity of uh, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So it's a funny triad. There are other important triads in India that people like dividing things in three. So I guess it was inevitable they should have divided gods in three. But I rather wish they'd made the goddess the third one instead of Brahma. You've got a big discussion of triads and tetrads in yep. Hindu tradition, which is an interesting chapter in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since you brought up the goddess, Dr. Doniger, some people observe that goddesses are worshipped, or maybe they're all manifestations of the one great mother. And they infer that in general, women have fared better in Hinduism than in, say, the Abrahamic faiths. Do you think that's right? Whoever said that knew nothing about Hinduism and simply was talking through the top of his head. Um, women are treated really, really badly in Hinduism, always have been and still are. Indeed, I think it's almost a rule you could make that if there are goddesses, then women are treated badly. If there are goddesses, it means that men acknowledge that women have a certain kind of natural power and they're scared of it. And therefore, they make sure that they don't have any other kind of power, such as, for instance, legal, the right to own property, or any of those rights that we have fought so hard for in this country and are still largely denied to women in India. Women are treated very badly indeed in India. So I think as a rule of thumb, goddesses are bad for women. And this is certainly true in India. That's very interesting. That's the opposite of what a lot of people would think. And I think some younger generations of feminists commonly make this assumption. They have got to take a better look at India. (laughs) That's all I can say. Um, No, they think that because goddesses are kind and women are generous and sweet, that if women ran the world, everything would be kind and generous and sweet. But if you take a look at goddesses in India, they are bloodthirsty. They are vicious. They are very, very scary, far scarier than the gods. 
And that is what you worship when you worship Kali or Durga. They are terrifying deities. They are not uh, sweet and loving, gentle mothers. Dr. Doniger, in the Jewish Bible, God walks with Adam in the garden. And according to Catholic Christianity, God became incarnate in the man Jesus. Hinduism contains many stories of gods descending to become men or even staying in their own realm and shape-shifting. What are some of your favorites among these stories? Well, of course, I'm a Shiva Bhakta. My Shiva is my god more than Vishnu. Vishnu has the big avatars. They're sometimes said to be 10. They're sometimes said to be 18. The two most famous of his avatars, that is to say his manifestations on earth, are human. They are the god Krishna and the god Rama, both of whom are forms of the god Vishnu. So whole epic Sanskrit texts are devoted to the two great human avatars, the Ramayana, which is the study of Rama, who is an avatar of Vishnu, and the Mahabharata, in which Krishna, who is an avatar of Vishnu, plays a great part, although he's not the central character in it. He's still a very important person in it. So those are famous, long-lasting periods in which the god is born as a child, has a whole human life, and in the end leaves earth and goes back up to heaven to become part of Vishnu again. But the god Shiva doesn't have avatars, but he appears on earth all the time in various forms. He disguises himself as this person or that person and intervenes in human life in very small and intimate ways. There's a wonderful South Indian story of a woman who was about to have her first child and her mother is not there. In India, when women marry, they go to live in their husband's houses, often very far away from where they're born, often speaking a different language from where they grew up. But in any case, it is the custom that when a woman has her first child, her mother tries to come to be with her from however far away. So on this occasion, this woman was about to go into labor. Her mother was hurrying to be there, but the river was in spate. The bridge was washed out, and she couldn't cross the river. So Shiva wanted to help. And you could have thought, well, what could he do? He could stop the river. He could build a bridge. No. He himself became a midwife and arrived at the house of the woman while she was about to have her child and assisted at the birth And everything was fine. And finally, the mother managed to get over there in a boat across and everything and met the midwife and thanked her and he went away. And that's all he did. Later on, they realized there was no midwife and that Shiva had in fact been the midwife. So there are thousands of stories like that about the god Shiva just sort of being among people all the time. And I find those ultimately more interesting, and it, well, they're a different sort. They're really not comparable. This is a different sort of story from the great cosmic avatars of the god Vishnu. This avatar of Vishnu as Rama has had interesting repercussions. The story of the Ramayana is a fairly simple story. Rama is married to Sita, the ogre Ravana, captures Sita and brings her away to his island, Rama gets an army together, and particularly an army of monkeys that he meets, talking monkeys. They manage to rescue Sita from the prison that she is in on the island uh, where Ravana rules, and they kill Ravana. 
So it's a very simple epic story, resembles the Iliad in some ways. There's clear good and evil, and it's a simple story that can be retold and is retold in many different languages in India. And cartoons and movies. Uh, and cartoons and everything. So over the years, however, it became a metaphor for kings, especially when they conquered Muslims. And it was used a lot in anti-Muslim rhetoric that the Hindu king who killed this Muslim upstart was like Rama killing Ravana and so forth. And it became politicized in many ways. And the myth that Rama was born in the city of Ayodhya, which is a town north of Delhi, which is like saying that Adam was born in the Garden of Eden. This is an ancient myth. This is not history. The myth that it was history and that there actually was a birth of Rama in this town was brought forth in the late 80s by these Hindutva nationalists, fundamentalists, who said that Rama had been born in a place in Ayodhya which happened to be underneath the Babri Masjid, one of the oldest mosques and one of the most beautiful mosques in India, the mosque of Babur, the great Mughal emperor. And so one day they simply went and tore down this mosque. The police standing by or helping. Hindus protested and tried to save it. Thousands of people were killed and there were riots all over India in response to the killing of the Muslims by the Hindus, the killing of the Hindus by the Muslims. Um, a lot of people died because people took as history what was the myth of the birth of Rama. On another occasion, the island that Ravana kept Sita prisoner on was called Lanka. It is not the present-day Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka was not called Lanka in the ancient world. It was called Simhadvipa and other things. Lanka is a much later name for it. So the island of Lanka is a mythical island, but it came over the centuries to be identified with the island off the southeast coast of India, which is now Sri Lanka. It so happens that there is a fairly narrow channel between Sri Lanka and India, and it's a very shallow channel, so it's too shallow for ships to pass through. So shipping that goes from Calcutta around the tip of India has to go all the way around uh, Sri Lanka and up on the other side to Bombay. And the Indian government wanted to save fuel and save trouble by deepening, cutting out this channel between Sri Lanka and India so that ships could pass by on the west side of Lanka, much closer to India, and save hundreds of miles and lots of money and fuel. And the Hindutva people said, nonsense, that narrow channel was built as a causeway that was built by Rama and the talking monkeys in order to rescue Sita. It's a sacred place. You can't build your canal there. And the Indian government said, come on, don't be silly. And there were massive demonstrations, and people died again, and the Indian government backed off, and they have never built that canal. They've never deepened that canal between Sri Lanka and India, and ships still have to go hundreds of miles out of their way because of the Hindutva belief in the literal truth of the Ramayana. Those are both really interesting examples of how history matters, even in today's politics and today's world. 
history always matters, and it matters so much in India, and false history matters, and that is why I wrote the book The Hindus, because I got so tired of these crazy false histories, and they didn't like it. When thinking about religion returns, I ask about popular misconceptions about nonviolence in Hinduism. Dr. Doniger, Gandhi famously emphasized the principle of ahimsa, nonviolence, and many have asserted that Hinduism is essentially nonviolent. But your view is different, as you explain in your chapter called The Toleration of Intolerance in Hinduism. Could you read us a bit of that? I'd be happy to. In their ambivalent attitude to violence, the Hindus are no different from the rest of humanity. It was the neo-Vedantin idealists who gladly embraced the Gandhian hope that the Hindus might set an example for the human race in passive resistance. Swami Vivekananda claimed wrongly that, quote, India is the only country where there never has been a religious persecution, end quote. The naive self-image of the neo-Vedantins was encouraged by the liberal American transcendentalists, Thoreau was a great one for nonviolence in the Gita, and by the Hindus' own desire to prove to the disdainful British that the Hindus were not the lascivious, bloodthirsty savages depicted in the colonial caricature. We can therefore see a kind of pizza effect in the contemporary Hindu investment in nonviolence. An ancient Hindu idea was appropriated and given new power by Hindus, such as Gandhi, who had been influenced by Western thinkers, such as Tolstoy, who were acquainted with the Neo-Vedantins as well as with German idealists who had been reading the Upanishads, making these ideas more attractive both to Westerners and to Hindus still living under the shadow of Western domination. But Gandhi was whistling in the dark. That passage really struck me, specifically... You're puncturing popular myths, <laughs> yes, as pleasant as they are, and also your use of the term pizza effect. <laughs> Can you explain that? Well, the pizza effect is simply that we think of pizza as an Italian food, but really it began in America by Italians in America, but then it became so popular that it was imported back to Italy, where Italians now make pizza and regard it as an Italian invention. But in fact, the idea came from Italy, was made in America, and then was imported back into India. So you have that ricocheting between cultures, where you start with an Indian idea, which is then transformed in America, and then goes back to India in the transformed form. And that's what happens really not so much with passive resistance, because Gandhi didn't like that term, but with nonviolence, which, of course, enormously influenced Martin Luther King as well. So ideas travel, and they have real effects upon real people. They matter. Americans are so conscious that we're like the newborn infants of uh, the cultures of the world, 
when we encounter India, and then when some Indians tell us that, oh, it's all been the same since 4,000 BC, sometimes we believe that. Uh, we shouldn't. <laughs> but, but looking at it like a historian, you see the lines of influence between the Westerners in the 19th century who are patronizing research into this and traveling to India, and it really looks quite differently. That's what I meant when I said that um, Said was right, of course, about the terrible damage that was done to India by uh, the colonizing uh, European presence. Not only the fact that people died and that the country was impoverished by the Europeans who stole from it so shamelessly, but that it changed the self-image and the attitudes of Indians themselves so that so much of what is done now in India is in reaction to the West in trying to speak back to it, to make up for the indignities of the colonial experience, to try to say, we are better, we have done these things better, we are ourselves, and so forth. I've just finished a book where the final chapter is about Indian claims about science, that we invented the airplane back in the Vedic period, mm -hmm. 300 BCE. We invented this, we invented that. Everything came from India. So they accept that science is a good thing, which is what they got really from Europe, and science is a good thing. But then because of the hurt to Indian pride, they say, and really, we had science before you had science. It's true that you built the trains in India. That was the great British contribution, roads and trains and telegraphs eventually too. But we really had nuclear power. We had plastic surgery. We had all these things way thousands of years ago and so forth. So that's all a twisting and distorting of Indian self-images, which comes from the colonial occupation. There's something like that with religion as well in the last 100 and uh, maybe 120, 130 years where, you know, Hinduism is the oldest religion. All the other religions are really just sort of branching out from this ancient trunk of Hinduism. So it's all really Hinduism. It seems tolerant at first glance, and then you sort of realize that it's not quite meant that way. <laughs> There are tolerant strands of Hinduism, but there are not those strands. Dr. Doniger, it seems that the ideas of karma and reincarnation have especially excited your own imagination and touched your heart. I was wondering if you could read us a passage on this from your essay called Death and Rebirth in Hinduism, which is in this book. I'd be happy to. My relationship with the karma theory changed in major ways over the half-century since I first encountered India. In my book, The Origins of Evil in Hindu Mythology, published in 1975, I argued that the theory of karma was not regarded as an adequate explanation of evil, even in its own country, as evidenced by the fact that the Hindus developed many other approaches to evil, including the myths that I wrote about in that book. In the preface to the second edition of The Origins of Evil, I remarked that I had changed my evaluation of the karma theory, had come to respect it more, in part by editing a 350-page book about it, Karma and Rebirth in Classical Indian Traditions, 1980. And in 1986, in Other People's Myths, I took it very seriously indeed. I had gradually come first to think with and then to feel with the karma theory. But my realization of this understanding happened at one particular moment. 
It was at a time when I was feeling rather sorry for myself for having only one child. I wished that I had had lots of children, and now it was too late. I felt that having six children would have meant having an entirely different life, not merely six times the life of a woman with one child. And I wanted that life as well as the life that I had. This thought was in my mind as I wandered on a beach in Ireland and saw a woman with lots and lots of children, very nice children, too, and at their best, as young children often are on a beach. Normally, I would have envied her. But this time, I enjoyed her children. I was happy to watch them. And suddenly, I felt that they were mine, that the woman on the beach had had them for me so that they would be there for me to watch them as they played in the water. Her life was my life too. I felt it then and I remember it now. What had been an idea to me until then, the idea of my karmic identity with other people, became an experience. I was able to live her life in my imagination. One way of interpreting my epiphany of the woman on the beach was this realization that my connection to her and through her to every other woman who had ever had or ever would have children meant that my brief lifespan was expanded into the lifespans of all the other people in the world. This is a very Hindu way of looking at one's relationship with all other people. Woven through the series of individual lives, each consisting of a cluster of experiences, was the thread of the experience itself, in this case, motherhood. That experience would survive when her children and mine were long dead. I felt then that all the things that one wanted to do and to be existed in eternity. They stood there forever as long as there was human life on the planet Earth. They were like beautiful rooms that anyone could walk into. And when I could no longer walk into them, they would still be there. They were part of time, and though they could not go on being part of me for much longer, part of me would always be there in them. Something of me would still linger in those things that I had loved, like the perfume or pipe smoke that tells you that someone else has been in a room before you. This is the same perfume, the same karmic traces of memory, called vasanas, that adhere to the transmigrating soul. And through my connection with the woman on the beach, I would be the people in the future who sensed in that room the perfume that I had left behind. Though, unless I was a very gifted sage, I would not recognize it as my perfume. Perhaps, since I am not a Hindu, that is as close as I can come to believing that I can remember my other lives, remembering other people's lives as my life, and perhaps it is close enough. Dr. Doniger, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for asking such interesting questions, Dale. I really appreciated being here. History does always matter, doesn't it? It matters to politics, to governance, to war and peace. And if you're a religious person, it's likely that your religion makes assumptions and claims about what has happened in our world. But are those claims true? Historians, as best they can, aim at truth. So do most religious believers. 
But in many cases, the historian does not say what the believer wants her to say. This occurs all the more often when it comes to recent history, illuminated by the bright lights of fresh and abundant evidence. But even medieval and ancient texts can be reached by the historian's searchlights. These lights shine in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome them. They show us, as far as the observable world goes, what has been there. Prophets, mystics, sages, gurus, and people who in India nowadays are called God-men claim to see farther to what is deeper, to the unobservable. But when they speak of this world, even they must conform to the light of decisive historical evidence. Today's thinking music has been the track Z, spelled X-I, by Andy G. Cohen. I'm Dale Tuggy. This has been Thinking About Religion. Thanks for listening.